Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, John. How are you? I am good. I don't know what's going on over in St. Paul. Here in Minneapolis, we've gotten a lot of really positive comments about our Teller Michael Callahan episode last time. Yeah, both of them. So eloquent, so fascinating. And yeah. I'll tell you, worth the price of admission just to hear Teller's voice. Yeah. That was the first time I heard it. Oh, I'd heard him. I've heard him speak before. So yeah, I didn't I know not, what we were getting. So it was uh it was great for me. And I'm glad that the uh the listeners are enjoying it. They uh, are. I got a, a comment, you know, I don't know. Listeners, you may not know this, but uh, every one of the Eli Marks podcasts can be found on our YouTube page. If for some reason you want to listen to it on YouTube, some people prefer to do that. I don't. I don't know why. And so I always uh, check the morning that the uh, podcast is supposed to come out. It uh, drops, as we say in the visit, drops at uh, one a.m. Uh, I think Central Time. I'm not sure. Uh, and then when I get up, I just check to make sure. And when that one dropped, very first comment was something along the lines of, "This is fantastic." Fantastic. Why have more people not listened to this? <laughs> like, well, let's leave it up for a couple hours. Um, help, yeah. But there's all sorts of uh, fun other stuff over on the Behind the Page YouTube page. And feel free, you guys, to stop into the Behind the Page Facebook page. We're happy to uh, interact with you there if you if you want to do that. Anyway, as hard as it may be to believe, we are nearing the end of Season 3. This is Episode 310. That means after this episode, just two left. Am I right there? Well, right you're, the you're you're right and you're wrong. Um, okay. And how could you know? Because you don't come Story to the meetings. Story of my life. Yeah. If you came into the meetings, you'd know what's going on. After this episode, we have two remaining stories from the Eli Marks uh, short story collection, the award-winning The Self-Working Trick. But like a good magic trick, we're also going to throw in a surprise kicker at the end. Let this act as a reminder to anyone out there who has not yet subscribed Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any kickers we may have in store for you. And listen, uh, close circuit here to all the people who are listening and have not yet either clicked on that subscribe button. Do that. But if you got a minute or two to spare after that, uh, you know, a review is terrific. Or a rating. Actually, they tell me ratings are more important than reviews, oddly enough. Is that right? Is that it right? Is. Yeah, because it's easier for the algorithm to figure out what's going on. But anyway, we love the reviews, but ratings are what get the podcast in front of other people who might enjoy it. Yeah. So I guess rate us, review us if you want, but subscribe and rate us. That would be so much appreciated, folks. We can hardly tell you. Now, let me, can I ask this question of you, you John? That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Thank God you're there because I, you know me. I've got nothing. Uh, The last episode that we did, uh, we opened with the interview and then played the story. Are you going to stick with that format this time or? You know, we're not. And I'm not just doing it to be adversarial. No, this episode's story, The Death of the Black Knight, has uh, in it the ventriloquist Gene Westlake. So I think listening to the story and getting kind of reintroduced to Gene Westlake helps uh, set up the post-story interview. You know, Gene is one of the Minneapolis mystics. He's been, I guess, kind of in the background of the series. Uh, I don't think he's had a whole lot to say until now. I I guess what I'm really saying is I don't remember recording a voice for him. 
Well, you did. You did. I think he makes his first appearance in the bullet catch. And okay. if you want to, I can dig through the files because, you know, I keep uh, little audio files of each one of the character voices for you so that uh, when you do step into that booth on those rare occasions that you <laughs> step into the booth to record something, we know what it was you uh, sounded like before. But since this story has references to ventriloquism and puppets, we decided to talk to a couple experts on the topic after the story. Uh, uh, we got two great experts, our longtime friend, Gordon Schmooter. Uh, Gordon makes his living making puppets and then making them come to life in shows like Transylvania Television, which is terrific. It is a very fun show. And I'll have links in the show notes as to how you can watch Transylvania Television. And then we also have a returning guest, ventriloquist Jay Johnson. Yay! Yeah, he was on a past show offering some recollections of his great pal, Harry Anderson. Yeah, this time he and Gordon are going to do a deep dive into their personal histories uh, with uh, puppets and ventriloquism, uh, including some stories of the times that they worked together. Yeah? Yep, absolutely. We'll get into that conversation after the story, but let's do that story first. It's a little Halloween mystery from the self-working trick called The Death of the Black Knight. Dun, dun, dun. The Death of the Black Knight Do you want to know the definition of an optimist? Uncle Harry posed this question as he climbed into my car. And climbed was the right verb. I had noticed it was becoming more and more of a challenge for him to both get in and get out of my tiny Mini Cooper. It got me thinking it might be time to upgrade to a more grown-up car, if only to make it easier to transport him. What's the definition of an optimist? I knew I was just acting as his straight man, a role I'd been happy to play since about age 14. An optimist is a man in his 80s about to sign a 30-year mortgage, he said with a chuckle. Most of the morning's jokes and quips have been real estate-related, to reflect our current mission, although we both knew he was clearly nowhere near the signing stage. When it came to buying a new home, Harry was, as he stated repeatedly as we ambled from open house to open house, just looking, thank you very much. He and Franny had been considering moving out of her small house in Richfield for two key reasons. The first was stairs, of which the Rambler had too many. When Harry had lived above the magic store, Chicago Magic, he had a set of stairs to climb each day, which would have given a mountain goat pause. The move to Franny's place offered stairs which weren't nearly as steep, but were instead more plentiful. The steps to get down to the laundry room and the steps to get up to their master bedroom. With his knees and her back, they both knew it was time to start thinking about seeking new living arrangements. So the first consideration for moving was to find a place that consisted of just one level, eliminating stairs insofar as possible. The second consideration was one of upkeep. Harry had no objection to paying someone to cut his grass, rake his leaves, and shovel his walk. He just couldn't find a person or service who would complete the tasks with any level of consistency, which drove him crazy. Service economy, my eye, he would growl, 
when he once again faced the problem of finding yet another company to handle these relatively small tasks. I swear, it's easier to buy high-grade opium on the street than to find someone to shovel snow in this city. These two considerations, stairs and landscaping, narrowed their options primarily to townhomes in small, planned neighborhoods, mostly situated in the first-ring suburbs around Minneapolis. Our mission on this particular morning was one of elimination. Franny had given Harry a list of open-house properties to approve or veto. Once he'd cast his vote, the next stage would be for both of them to visit the potential properties together and narrow them down to one on which they could both agree. The first three places had just been drive-bys, because that was all Harry required to jettison the houses from the master list. However, the fourth option seemed to hold some possibilities. Quiet neighborhood, that's good, he said as he scanned the circle of about 20 townhomes in the cul-de-sac. All the houses aren't painted the same. That's a nice touch. Oh, and one even still has a few Halloween decorations up. That's a plus. In my mind, people are in too much of a rush to shed the trappings of my favorite holiday these days. In addition to its Halloween embellishments, the townhome also sported an open house sign indicating it was our destination. I pulled up to the curb while Harry continued his initial appraisal. It appears to be all one level, no front steps and attached garage, he quickly listed. So far, there's no reason not to go in and find out why it won't work. With that positive assessment, I turned off the car and hurried over to the passenger side to offer assistance to Harry. He waved it away, but... I grabbed his elbow and helped him out of the low car anyway. Harry surveyed the front of the house as he got his sea legs. Well, my initial assessment is that I don't hate it. High praise indeed, I said, as we started up the short driveway toward the front door. Hey, want to buy some Halloween decorations? The voice came to us from a life-sized pirate skeleton. We turned to the sound just as a face appeared from behind the bony figure. The fellow was in his thirties and was in the midst of disassembling the figure placing the pieces in one of several large plastic tubs. They're priced to move. No thanks, I said. I live in an apartment. Perhaps you could include them in the sale of the house, Harry suggested. There are buyers out there for whom an offer like that might just be the tipping point. The guy shook his head. Not in this neighborhood. Decorations like these can get you killed. With that ominous pronouncement, he returned to his work and we made our way toward the front door. You've got all new appliances in the kitchen, a new roof, new video doorbell and security system, and all new carpet in the master bedroom, the realtor said in a quick practiced recitation. Plus, if you're interested, the seller would be happy to include the patio furniture at no additional cost. The realtor, who introduced herself as Sybil Tewksbury, was doing her best to sound super interested in the property. However, she also kept checking her phone, so this particular open house may not have been her top priority. Harry peered out the window at the patio and its now included furniture. That's nice, he said noncommittally. 
I could tell he was using the same affect he'd put on when buying a car. Polite, but just this side of board. How about all those Halloween decorations? Are they included as well? I didn't think Harry was actually interested in decorations. Like me, he was curious about the odd statement made by the guy on the front lawn. How could Halloween decorations get one killed? The question was clearly not one Sybil Tewksbury was thrilled about answering. Well, she stammered, I suppose we could explore that. The thing is, there were some issues between the previous owner and the association board about those, um, those decorations. So, personally, I wouldn't recommend heading down that path again. What sort of issues? Harry said. He might not be interested in buying the house, but he was definitely intrigued by this story. Well, there was a lot of back and forth about the appropriateness and quantity of the items, she began which, unfortunately, ended quite tragically. Tragically, Harry and I said, accidentally in unison. Yes, sadly, the owner was shot while giving out Halloween candy, she said quietly. This sudden drop in volume was odd, as we appeared to be the only ones with her in the house. The police believed the incident was a direct consequence of the decorations. The owner was murdered? I said quickly, over Halloween decorations? How did that happen? That's interesting, Harry said, waving my questions away. But aren't you required to disclose such an event as part of the sales process? Well, yes, Sybil said with a nod, which I've just done. But normally, who wants to touch on such gruesome tales at an open house? I'd be inclined to make something like that an element in the inspection process, if and when it comes to that. Wait, back up, I said, still not fully understanding her description of the events. He was killed over Halloween decorations? Like I said, Sybil replied, again using her quiet voice, probably in the hopes I'd do the same. The police are looking at all possibilities. It was one of the neighbors, and I have a pretty good idea which one it was, came a voice from behind us. We turned to see the guy who had been disassembling the decorations out on the lawn. He was lugging a full tub, which he stacked next to two others near the front door. If you want my opinion, it was Claude Harrison. He shot Dave in cold blood. Did I mention the new washer-dryer combo? Sybil said, gesturing that we should follow her out of the front entryway but Harry ignored her. You think a neighbor shot him over the decorations? A couple of the neighbors hated Dave's Halloween decorations, the man continued. It was his favorite holiday ever since we were kids. This is Ray, the late owner's brother, Sybil said. She sounded defeated, clearly feeling she had lost her fruitless battle to change the subject. What form did the neighbor's objections take? Harry took a step closer to Ray, and I followed. They filed complaints with the association board, Ray said as he pulled off his work gloves. He sported a couple days' worth of beard and looked like he'd been awake for that time period as well. Claude Harrison is the president of the board, and he brought it up to a vote at an emergency meeting. The board has final say on all exterior enhancements. 
They also have a charitable wing. Does a lot of good in the community, Sybil added, but I could tell her heart was no longer in it. She returned her attention to her phone. But Dave was too smart for them, Ray said with a grin. You see, they objected to the number of decorations and the amount of light they gave off. I mean, you can toss around words like garish and gaudy, but that's all subjective. So they went after him with hard numbers. And he came right back at him, Ray continued. Dave presented photos of Christmas displays from the previous years in which neighbors had far more decorations on their homes than he did, and their displays were giving off a lot more light as well. He was able to prove that a precedent had been established. It made Claude Harrison furious, but there was nothing he could do. So, instead, Claude shot him. However, the police can't substantiate that, am I correct? Harry offered. Ray shook his head. Even though there were a ton of people around, no one saw him do it. I think he used a silencer, but I can't prove it. He looked over at the realtor. I'm going to go grab some lunch. I'll be back later to finish disassembling everything. He looked at the two of us as he headed out the front door. Anyway, if she didn't mention it, there's new carpet in the master bedroom, a new security system, and new appliances in the kitchen. And then he was gone. I get the sense Franny's unlikely to add this house to her list of possibilities, I said, as Harry and I headed down the driveway toward the car. What with the murder and all? You'd be surprised. Franny's far more open-minded than you might think, Harry said. Yes, but come on. A homicide took place right there in the house. Actually, said a female voice, it wasn't in the house. It was outside by the front door. We both turned to see a woman walking a small black Scottish terrier. The woman, who appeared to be in her fifties, was bundled up against the cold winds which had settled on the cities after Halloween. The dog looked very stylish, wrapped in his own tartan coat. I was there when it happened, she continued. There were a whole bunch of us. Dave was joking with one of the kids, and they were grabbing candy and laughing, and all of a sudden he yelled, Call 911! I've been shot! Call 911! And the board president was there as well? Harry asked. Sure, Claude was there, but like I told the police, I didn't see him do anything. But it was a big crowd, a lot of kids coming and going. Does this neighborhood normally get a lot of kids on Halloween? I was thinking of our own situation on Chicago Avenue, where we had seen fewer and fewer trick-or-treaters each year. It did once Dave moved in, the woman said. He created the perfect Halloween storm. And I'm not talking about the blizzard in 91. No, lots of scary decorations with strobe lights and fog and weird sound effects. Plus, he gave away full-size candy bars. No fun size for him. Don't get me started on the myth of fun-size candy bars, Harry grumbled to no one in particular. Once word got out, kids would come from miles around, which was one of the things Claude hated, the woman said. She stepped closer and lowered her voice. Claude doesn't like outsiders coming into our cul-de-sac with their kids on Halloween. He said Dave's setup attracted the wrong element. Was he right? Harry asked. She shrugged. It's Halloween. 
It's fun. But Claude doesn't like fun. I think that was his biggest beef with Dave, because Dave really loved Halloween. Oh, my. You should have seen what he came up with every year. He had a ton of costumes and was always adding to his huge supply of decorations. You knew Dave well? Harry asked. As well as you know any neighbor, she said. Maybe a little better. We'd chat, exchange gossip. He'd carp about his freeloading brother. I'd complain about my lazy husband. You know, standard stuff. And then to see him shot. Right in front of me. It was horrible. She winced at the memory. I was ready to let her get on with her walk, but Harry wasn't finished exploring this gory tale. Can you tell me exactly what happened? He asked in his most soothing tone. Well, like I told the police, she began, it was a busy night, lots of kids running through the neighborhood. Some I recognized, some I didn't. I was taking our two little ones out on the circuit while my husband stayed home to hand out candy. When we got here, she gestured up toward the house, Dave was sitting in a chair by the front door, kibitzing with the kids. The strobe lights were going, there was fog on the ground, and sound effects galore, moans and screams. Dave was in costume, of course, all dressed up as that knight from that Monty Python movie, the one with no legs and bloody stumps for arms. The Black Knight, I offered. That's the one. It was really gross, but kind of funny. The chest plate, the helmet, the bloody stumps, all covered in blood. And just like in the movie, he'd yell at the kids as they took candy from the bowl, his voice all tinny in the helmet. Hey, ghost, just take one, you little monster. Or hey, Spider-Man, are you afraid to fight me? Stuff like that. She took a deep breath. I could tell it wasn't an easy story to relive. Anyway, there was a big group when my kids and I arrived. We were waiting our turn to go take candy from the bowl, and Dave was joking and kidding, making fun of their costumes. And Claude was there? She nodded. Yes, even though he had tried to get the decorations removed, he's a father with kids, and Dave was giving away full-size candy bars. Do the math. So he bit the bullet and let his kids visit that house, and then all of a sudden, Dave yelled, Call 911! I've been shot! Call 911! And people did? Harry asked. It took a few seconds to realize he was serious, but then everybody was on their phones in a flash, the woman said, and the fire trucks and the EMTs were here super quick. One of the EMTs raced ahead of the others and pulled off Dave's helmet, tried to free his arms from the costume. Then the firemen made us all back up so they could get in and help him. She sniffled a bit, then continued. The irony was, if he'd been wearing an actual metal chest plate, the bullet might not have done any damage. Unfortunately, his was made of cardboard. They said he died in the ambulance. What did Claude do during all this? Harry seemed to be determined to pull every last detail from this poor woman. I didn't really notice him until Dave's brother came running out of the house. He must have heard the fire engines. They had to pull him away from Dave so the EMTs could work on him. And then he saw Claude and started yelling at him. You killed my brother! You killed my brother! The police had to separate them. It got so ugly. But no charges were filed? Harry asked. She shook her head. Not yet. There were plenty of witnesses, but no one saw anything. They couldn't find a gun, so it's still a mystery. She looked over at the few remaining decorations, 
which Dave's brother still needed to pack away. End of an era, she said sadly. Halloween's not going to be the same without Dave. I was reminded of her story two days later as I carried a tray of drinks to some patrons in the back of the bar. I hadn't gone all out with the Halloween decorations this year, but the meager ones I'd hung up had started to sag and were clearly ready to be taken down. I dreaded the task, if only because clearing away the artificial cobwebs I'd placed in the corners would also probably involve cleaning out the real cobwebs right behind them. But seeing the decorations reminded me of the death of the Black Knight. I set the beers on the table where two of the four horsemen of criminal apprehension were sitting. Uncle Harry had given the foursome that nickname because all were involved in some form of criminal detection. They had, for some reason, picked my bar as their new hangout. It may have been because one of them was married to my ex-wife, but that had never been confirmed. The cop in question, homicide detective Fred Hutton, grabbed one of the beers and gave the other a gentle push, sliding it in front of his tablemate, Carol Hollinger. Although she looked for all the world to be a stereotypical librarian, Carol actually ran the Minneapolis Police Department's forensic lab with an iron fist and an acerbic tongue. At the next table sat my Uncle Harry and two of his cronies from the Minneapolis Mystics, mentalist Abe Ackerman and ventriloquist Gene Westlake. It appeared that Gene must have gone to the men's room. His seat was empty, but his coat was still hanging across the back of his chair. Once I had their drinks in front of them, I turned back to the law enforcement professionals at the nearby table. Did you two hear anything about that murder in Bloomington where the fellow was shot while giving out candy on Halloween? We got a call from the county on that one because they were short-handed, homicide detective Fred Hutton explained in his slow, lulling monotone. Not much for us to do, though. Victim died of a gunshot wound to the chest. No weapon has been found. The circumstances were pretty odd, though, don't you think? I offered. I mean, he's sitting right by his front door, and someone shoots him while a crowd of parents and kids stand around watching? With the distractions provided by the strobe lights and the fog and the sound effects, no one saw or heard anything, Carol Hollinger added. At least, nothing helpful. So, questioning that neighbor he'd been feuding with didn't produce any results? Harry asked. Homicide detective Fred Hutton was about to respond, but he was interrupted by Gene Westlake, who pushed past me to get to his chair. Well, that's annoying, Gene said loudly, just flat out annoying. What happened, Gene? Abe Ackerman asked. Gene Westlake was usually very soft-spoken, so this demonstration of emotion was highly uncharacteristic. Oh, I just got off the phone with my agent. Turns out I lost another gig to that good-for-nothing Larry Bennett, he huffed. He took a quick sip of his drink of choice, a Diet Coke, no ice. I don't need the work, of course, but it just irks me that that phony is still getting paid for his malarkey. Just about every magician and variety performer has a nemesis in the business, someone who gets more gigs and does it with less talent. For me, Simon Hartwell is the bane of my existence. For Gene Westlake, it was Larry Bennett. I wouldn't mind if it was someone good, he continued, but that faker has been getting away with his nonsense for far too long. He just makes the rest of us look bad. 
What exactly is his nonsense? Carol asked. He steals, like crazy, Gene said. It's like that old saying, his act is good and original. The problem is the parts that are good aren't original and the parts that are original aren't good. That's Larry Bennett to a T. Plus, the snake pre-recorded his finale, Gene sputtered. Fake, fake, fake. I'd never seen him this angry before. I exchanged a look with Harry. It's not uncommon, Harry explained, for ventriloquists to close out their act with a song, a duet with their puppet. Jay Marshall and Lefty used to sing If I Had My Way. Jay Johnson and Darwin sang Send in the Clowns, if I'm remembering correctly. Jimmy Nelson sang Rag Mop and Hold That Tiger as a medley. Just fantastic, Abe Ackerman added. Gene, you and Kenny did It Had to Be You for years, and then you switched it out, right? Harry said. Gene was in the middle of taking a sip. He nodded. Yes, I changed it to You're the Top. It has a good back and forth, and it's easier for me to customize the lyrics for corporate gigs. You know, you're the top, you're the best at retail, you're the top, you're the best at ad sales. Clients eat that kind of stuff up. If you haven't seen Gene singing with his puppet Kenny, you're missing something pretty spectacular, I said to Carol. He can actually harmonize with the puppet. He studied with the Tuvan throat singer, of all things, A. Ackerman said. It's stunning. Gene nodded modestly. I don't know why I bothered to go to all that effort. I could just do it the way Larry Bennett does it, with a recording, for heaven's sake. How do you mean a recording? Carol asked. I think Gene's emotional level had intrigued her. We all use pre-recorded music, Gene explained. Your sound guy hits the play button when you give him the cue, and you've got a nice background track to sing against. It's standard operating procedure. But this Larry Bennett clown, he went one step further. He's pre-recorded his puppet's part of the song, so it sounds like he's doing both voices literally at the same time, in harmony, no less. But it's really just a cheat. And clients don't mind that he's deceitful? Carol asked. The poor saps don't have a clue, and if they did, they probably wouldn't care, Gene said with a sad shake of his head. They don't give a hoot where the sound is coming from. They just want a good, clean show that finishes on time and doesn't bring down a torrent of emails from the trolls at HR. Gene continued to rant about Larry Bennett and the damage he was doing to the art and craft of ventriloquism, but I'd stopped hearing him. Something he'd said reminded me of the death of the Black Knight. I glanced over at Harry, who also wasn't paying attention to Gene. So let me ask you this, Harry said, when Gene stopped talking long enough to take a quick breath. That Halloween killing in Bloomington, did you talk to the victim's brother at all? Homicide detective Fred Hutton nodded. We questioned him at length. He was inside the house during the evening playing a video game of some sort. He did go out a couple of times to refill the candy bowl. Apparently, the victim's costume rendered his limbs useless for the duration. But other than that, the brother didn't realize anything had occurred until he saw the flashing lights of the fire truck with the EMTs. I remember the woman walking the dog had casually referred to him as Dave's freeloader brother. 
I wondered if there was more to it than that. Did you get a sense of any tension between the two brothers, bad blood or anything? Homicide detective Fred Hutton narrowed his eyes at me. Not from the brother, no. In fact, according to him, he had made plans to move into his own housing within the next few weeks. He said his residence there was always intended to be temporary, but several of the neighbors did report loud arguments. However, by all accounts, the brother was in the house when the fatal silent shot was fired. Was the property left to him in the will? There was no will, but as the only surviving next of kin, the house and all of his brother's assets are his, once it clears probate. I looked over at Harry. Are you thinking about Moritz's donkey disappearance illusion? He nodded. Yes, but coupled with something akin to the audio ploy used by our friend Larry Bennett. Carol Hollinger leaned forward. What are you talking about? It's obvious to us, Harry said as he sat back confidently in his chair. The Black Knight was killed by his brother. Well, the karmic wheel has spun, my friends, and it landed with a thud on Larry Bennett. It was about a week later, and Gene Westlake was nearly skipping as he approached the mystic's table in the back of the bar. How do you mean? Harry asked. I heard from my agent about that gig I lost to Bennett, Gene said as he slid into an empty chair. Turns out his finale crashed and burned. The client threatened not to pay him. They certainly won't be hiring him again. And I'm sure word of the fiasco has spread throughout the meetings and events industry. What went wrong? Gene continued to grin. Apparently, the Luddite was still using CDs for his audio cues, for goodness sake. When they hit the cue for the finale, something went wrong about 30 seconds into the song. The CDs started to skip. How soon did the sound guy figure out there was a problem and fix it? Having had my own tech nightmares while on stage, I was curious as to how long Leary Bennett had been hung out to dry. Not soon enough, that's for sure, Gene said. For some insane reason, he'd picked the song Don't Go Breaking My Heart as his finale. Like you said, the parts of his act that are original aren't good, Harry said with a laugh. And to add insult to injury, the CD skipped on the word heart, Gene continued. Except it sounded like, pardon my French, the word fart, and it repeated over and over and over again. For how long? Long enough, Gene said. He was having trouble talking. He was laughing so hard. Harry and I couldn't help but join in. Well, this is a jolly group. What's so funny? I looked up to see homicide detective Fred Hutton was looming over us. We're just rhapsodizing about performance hijinks gone wrong, I said as I stood. You want your regular? He shook his head and gestured for me to stay seated. I'm on duty. I just wanted to stop by and let you two know you were right about the Halloween killing. So it was the brother, Harry said, a tinge of pride in his voice. In fact, you were right on virtually every count, homicide detective Fred Hutton said as he pulled up a chair. There were plenty of seats available at our table, but for some reason he chose to grab one from his regular table. I imagine it was his way of keeping a separation between church and state. 
Let us guess what we got right, Harry said as he smiled at me. First off, he killed his brother for money. That's the most common reason after passion. Bingo, the detective said. The house and the estate totaled over a million dollars. Our killer was dead broke, and his brother was tired of covering his gambling debts. He knew the fracas of the decorations had created a likely suspect in the board president, I added, and once he found out his brother was going to dress up as the Black Knight, he knew Halloween was the best time to do the deed. Exactly. And the Black Knight was the perfect costume, I continued. Basically, he helped his brother into the outfit, then drugged him to knock him out. With the helmet over his head, no one could see he'd been slipped a Mickey. And since the character has no arms or legs, it made sense for him to be sitting there all night stock still, Harry added. Just this torso, yelling insults at the kids through his mask. But I thought he was drugged, Jim Westlake said. How could he yell at the kids? He was out like a light, I said. But the house was equipped with one of those video doorbells. Just like you throw your voice with your puppet, so too did the brother throw his voice via the speaker on the video doorbell, Harry explained. Everyone assumed it was the voice of our victim. It sounded a bit tinny, but that was fine, because it was supposedly coming from within the helmet, which was only a couple of feet away, I added. And because the doorbell includes a video camera, the brother was able to see all the trick-or-treaters from inside the house, Harry said. That allowed him to make specific comments about their costumes, which added verisimilitude to the effect. So far, you're batting a thousand, homicide detective Fred Hutton said. He wasn't actually smiling, but he did seem to be enjoying our recap of the fatal event. So, once the brother sees, via the doorbell cam, that the board president, Claude Harrison, is in attendance, he knows it's time to complete his plan, I said. He shouts, I've been shot, call 911, into the doorbell speaker, and people in the crowd grab their cell phones and start dialing. Now, at this point, I'm just guessing, but the woman we talked to told us Dave had a large supply of Halloween costumes, Harry said slowly. I suspect one of those costumes might have been that of a fireman slash EMT. He looked to homicide detective Fred Hutton, who merely nodded. And just like the assistant dressed in the clown costume in Moritz's donkey disappearance illusion, the brother knew the EMT costume would cover a key moment in the crime, Harry continued. As the fire truck pulls up, the brother appeared, probably running around from the back of the house, I said. He dove into the crowd, pushing them aside to get to the alleged victim. Under the cover of removing Dave's helmet, he took that moment to shoot his brother fatally at close range with a silencer. Then, as the real EMTs ran up the driveway, he stepped away and blended into the confusion before sneaking into the house again via the back door, Harry said. He quickly shed the costume and appeared, moments later at the front door, confused and outraged. 
Homicide Detective Fred Hutton continued to nod silently. I would guess, unless he was smarter than the average criminal, the costume is still among Dave's effects, Harry continued, and that powder burns will be detected on the gloves. Right on all counts, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton said. Plus, even though he deleted the videos recorded by the doorbell, he was unaware the security company stores all videos, deleted or not, for 30 days. In a very real sense, the stupid sap recorded all the evidence we'll need to convict him. Very thoughtful of him, I offered. Anyway, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton said as he stood up, I just wanted to stop by and thank you for the tip. It made all the difference. Without waiting for a response, he turned and headed toward the door. I looked over at Harry. Did he just give us a compliment? I believe so, although he's likely to deny it, Harry said with a laugh. And like Haley's Comet, don't expect to see that event again for another 80-some years. I stood up as well, recognizing actual customers had wandered into the bar and would likely appreciate service. But then a thought occurred to me. Oh, should I block out Saturday for more open house drive-bys? Harry shook his head. I believe Franny and I have solved our housing issues and that we'll be staying put. But what about all the stairs? We need to replace the washer-dryer, so we're just getting a smaller stacking unit, which will fit nicely into the mudroom. So no more traipsing down to the cellar to do laundry. But what about the stairs up to the master bedroom? Franny had a brainstorm. On the main floor, we're knocking down the wall between the guest bedroom and the never-used office and turning that into the master bedroom, he said. The one upstairs then becomes the guest room. Slick, I said. But what about your outdoor needs? Shoveling, raking, cutting the grass. Harry smiled. Remember when you were a teen? and we're always looking for ways to earn some pocket money, how you lamented that we lived above the store so you couldn't hit me up to cut the grass and rake the leaves? I nodded. That was one of the key reasons I started doing magic for kids' birthday parties. It was my only source of income. So have you found a neighborhood kid? Well, he lives nearby, and although he's no longer a youngster, he still possesses an undeniable boyish charm. It took a long moment, and then I got it. You're hiring me? I'm doing the lawn and the shoveling? Not to worry, it will be at current rates. Plus, it will give me a chance to see you more often. I see you every day, I protested. Every single blessed day. Aren't we a lucky pair, Harry said with a grin as he held up his empty glass. Now, be a dear and grab me a refill. So what's interesting about this story, among other things, is that it's the first mention after Harry and Franny got married of their plans to move. Yeah. Because um, it's not really working out at their little house in Richfield. Um, and that will become sort of a major thing uh, in the ninth book in the series, The Professor's Nightmare. But the, we're starting to lay the groundwork 
for that here. So on to the interview. We talk a little bit about our, our histories with Gordon and Jay in the interview, so we don't need to say much on that. But is there any other introductory stuff you want to say? Uh, just how much I enjoy uh, Gordon and his work. And you are a much closer friend of Jay's. I am sort of um, uh, a Jay uh, fanboy. I, I I really like Jay's work, but I I don't know him. I'm not a friend of his uh, of, at all. But I think he's amazing and terrific, and about the nicest guy on the planet. And you have performed with him at Sunday Night Magic. Yes, yes, uh, with that's Derek true. Hughes doing yeah. the the second sight routine that uh, Jay used to do with Harry Anderson. All I can say about that is that when. He, he jay i was in the audience for a good chunk of like you do and i was laughing so hard at jay that the puppet kept turning to me and going because i i was laughing so hard i couldn't control it and then the puppet would look right at me and go shut it was it was uh, i'm just about ready to pass the stone reliving it Yes. Well, all right. Let's get into the interview. We we kicked off the interview with me talking quite a bit about why I was often reluctant to use ventriloquism as a focal point uh, in an Eli Marks story. In the Eli Marks series, we mention the other variety arts occasionally, but the story that the uh, listeners are hearing this episode is one of the few that really involves ventriloquism. Um, I've sort of stayed away from ventriloquism in mysteries because I think it's a crutch. So I don't really use it that much. Well, it is. It's it's like twins. It's like twins. It's like, well, no, you can't. No, you can't do ventriloquism in a mystery. That's just not fair. There's an Agatha Christie play that I directed called A Murder is Announced, where Miss Marple at the end of the play not only reveals a skill at completely, utterly imitating someone's voice, but also doing it as a ventriloquist to, to solve the mystery. So I just, I stay away from ventriloquism uh, as the central part of the mystery, but as something to uh, explore when it comes to people's passions. I thought it'd be fun to talk to you guys about that. First thing I want to ask, just to get it right off the table, is what does the public get right and wrong about puppets in general and specifically ventriloquism for you, Jay? What, what is the wrong thing they think all the time? That's a great question. I, I think they think it's a, a, a psychological problem rather than just an art form. You know, you you wouldn't be a ventriloquist if you weren't nuts. Therefore, like you say, any writer that wants to look for somebody that's really crazy, all you have to do is show him with a puppet. If he's a ventriloquist, he's really pretty much a killer. It all gets down to whether you think of it as, as an art form or some sort of disability, you know. So I don't think of it as a disability. I think of it as an art form. And a lot of people don't think that. And really, ventriloquists have their own their own selves to blame, you know, because in an effort to make this character feel alive and feel uh, spontaneous and feel all that stuff, well, they they buy into it so much that it looks like they're nuts. And sometimes they are. I don't know. But uh, oh, speaking of John, the, the book, I got to tell you, uh, this idea about using ventriloquists ventriloquism and kind of puppetry and, and it's really what you've used is ventriloquism in in this little um yeah. uh, murder but it reminded me that years ago peter sellers was teamed with a magician and the magician would would sit on stage blindfold himself sit in a chair and people in the audience would hold up things and he would say exactly what it was 
every time. And in reality, it was a mask that covered his whole face. And it was Peter Sellers backstage with binoculars that could see it and could imitate his voice as if it were muffled. And that was the act. So yeah, that's very similar to the second sight routine that exactly. did with Harry. Yeah. Well, that's what that was the genesis of it when I heard that. Yeah, so we we actually did the uh, uh, earless hearing and seeless eyes or whatever it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we did that, I went. Not only do I know that would work, it has worked for fooling people in the past. So it was great. Oh, I'm glad you like that. Yeah, I'm going to switch over to Gordon now and to see: Is there any misconception people have about puppets and puppeteering? Um, the, the well, the kind of puppeteering that I do is. Um, very uh muppety um you know uh when people say what do you do i say i'm a puppeteer like jim henson only not so dead oh and uh okay what too too soon too soon um, no, I, no. I can't uh i'm not the guy i'm i can't i can either confirm <laughs> or deny I don't know. um but uh it, it's in america and, and I say that as a, a huge generalization. In America, people tend to think of puppets and puppetry as strictly a kid's thing. Um, and, and particularly in the, the, the television puppet sort of way that I, I operate in. Um, I, I, don't, I don't do kids entertainment. The show that we created was for grownups. And it was all puppets so you know in in europe you've got puppet theater that is hundreds of years old maybe even thousands of years old i'm not sure but it's for grown-ups it's it is legitimate theater with in air quotes um and uh adults don't shy away from showing up for these performances and they don't need a child with them in order to attend these performances like you kind of do in America, you know, oh, we're going to see a puppet show. Oh, you taking the kids? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's for the kids. You see, you see a lot of that. It, it, adults kind of rely on children as a crutch to indulge their puppet interests. You know, I I, I get a I, I sell a lot of puppets. And when I'm at a show selling puppets across the table. I get a lot of, oh, those are great. Oh, I don't have any grandkids, though. I don't have any kids, they, you know. And it's like, um, yeah, well, okay. Then I'm sorry that you don't indulge yourself. <laughs> when did you first get interested in puppets, Gordon? Um, from from childhood. From Remember childhood. your first experience with a puppet? Um, boy, my, my childhood is a very, very mushy bowl full of <laughs> all kinds of memories so it could have been anything from sesame street to um sid and marty croft on saturday mornings uh to uh, uh, uh you know uh, uh, uh oh uh, um uh, kukla fran and ollie yeah um, a lot of those shows were available many of them i'm you know I, I hate to say it, I'm not old enough to have seen them in their first run, uh, like Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up on puppets on television mostly, and that, of course, has influenced where I've ended up. Um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 let's just say Sesame Street, because that's the easy okay. one. 
everybody understands Sesame Street. Sure. Okay, Jay, how about you? What's your first interaction with a puppet? Um, I'm trying to think the first interaction, uh, and uh, like Gordon, it must have been television because uh, I I grew up in a town that only had two stations. We did not have ABC. We had NBC, CBS. So the old um, uh, Jerry Mahoney, Paul Winter show, we didn't have because it was ABC. Uh, but I was always fascinated in, in puppets. I remember the first time I saw a ventriloquist on uh, television and my brother said, you know, that um, that guy holding the puppet he's actually working that puppet and it that's the first time it dawned on me that that wasn't just an inner independent active thing you know that he was actually controlling it uh but my mother uh, made puppets for me uh she made little paper mache puppets because you know to buy a puppet from gordon would have been impossible back then you know so so we just had to make our own so i don't know i'm i like gordon it's it's a it's a mush as to how anything becomes part of you you know it's just something that you latch on to that the other people might go by real fast it, uh, the uh, how about let's talk about the first sort of um time you used the puppet your first creative experience with the puppet uh, jay and then we'll go to gordon well the the first uh, uh creative Use there was a time that I, I did puppets, and there was a time that I decided I was a ventriloquist, or and they sort of kind of mixed. Uh, but I think it was with mom's uh, paper mache puppets that we would do behind the couch, kind of do some things that wasn't very professional. But uh, I think we uh, we lip synced some well, lip sync, we puppet synced some uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks or something, you know, for the people and uh. Uh, I was always known as the guy that was um, the entertainer. You know, you come over and I would do the show. So we were always creating puppet shows or live shows or, you know, somebody on the piano and somebody singing or guitar, whatever. So it's kind of a natural extension, I guess. But it, the first time, I it's hard to know because it just feels like it's always been part of me. You know, How old were you when you uh, made the voice come out of the telephone? I was about five or six. I remember that because I remember the house that we lived in at the time. Yeah. Uh, and that was just part of keeping my uh, energy and my, they called, they called it back then a creative child. I think it's now dyslexia or some spectrum, but uh, <laughs> that's how they coped with it. And my mom would also do, she was, she was really a, a, a genius as, as a, a, when it comes to imagination, she had some great imaginative stuff. She would put two little pieces of paper on a record right near the spindle and say it was horse race. And I had to listen to the record and, and find out which horse would, well, they're never going to beat the other one, right? They, whatever I bet on, it's never going to work. <laughs> but that kept me going for hours. And when they discovered that I liked to telephone, that was more hours that I could be out of their hair. So I think that was it. I'm going to refer in the show notes to um, connecting people to your one-man show, which is where I first heard the telephone story. And we'll get more into uh your the shows that each of you created but gordon do you remember your first creative interaction with a puppet where you kind of made something happen well i i remember the very first puppet that i was ever given as a gift and that was an oscar the grouch puppet um it came in a in a great package and and this is this is probably part of the reason why i'm so fascinated with with the creative packaging of the 1970s but the the package itself was actually designed like a stage proscenium 
And then it had a garbage can in cardboard that was where the puppet was held. And then uh, there was you, you could you could cut open the back of it and use that as his garbage can. And uh, it was it was just a, a a beautiful like altogether package. The puppet, the package itself, um, and it was you know that package was designed to be part of the toy. Mm-hmm. Um, th- uh, other than that. Uh, my dad was a very crafty guy. Um, you know, he, he always had a way of building things. You know, I, I would make an offhand comment about, uh, you know, boy, I think Pinocchio is really cool. And dad would latch on to the idea that I was into marionettes because Pinocchio equals marionette. And so he, just went out and built me one um it was a very very limited kind of thing um it was made out of um i think it was just wood wood and felt um so what he did was he had a an outline of a figure and then he had a torso and uh thighs and shins and feet and then you know, upper arms, lower arms, and hands, and head, and he laminated two pieces of wood around that felt. So there was wood on the front, wood on the back, and then felt in the middle, and attached strings to it with little eyelets, and and suddenly I had a marionette. Um, he painted it silver and was obviously pushing me towards having a robot marionette, which was very cool, except that I wanted Pinocchio. So I made him a little green felt hat (laughs) and he was a robot Pinocchio. Um, (laughs) To this day, I really, really do wish, uh, I wish I was more careful with my toys as a child because I would give just about anything to have that thing that my dad made uh, back and in my collection. Um, And that's, uh, you know, I'm, you, you grow up as a, as a, Especially back in the 60s and 70s, you grow up as a kid, toys were disposable, baby. Mm. There there was no such thing as a collector's market. Um, And so, you know, when and coming from a family that was relatively creative, uh, it was it was it was never a finished object. It was always (laughs) fodder for more creative things to do. So, you know, if I needed a part of if I needed the airplane controller off of that marionette snip those strings and take that controller and he just became a doll sitting on a shelf um you know that that sort of thing happened a lot but i think i really do think that's the first puppet that i ever performed with or tried to perform um so yeah i'm fascinated by all of this because it brings back puppet memories of my own john did you were you a puppet Kid, did you play with puppets? Um, I remember having a Mr. Ed puppet, a hand puppet. Oh, God, had right. a voice box, and you could pull the thing, and it would say, hey there, Wilbur. <laughs> I remember in kindergarten that some product, and I want, I, 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 I'm going to say it was some sort of laundry detergent, gave away Wizard of Oz puppets with their product I, and I, I, I like I don't remember what the product was but I remember having a, a scarecrow and a, a witch of, wicked witch of the west from that 
uh, giveaway, and I played with those incessantly. In fact, we I bought a bunch of puppets for my kids who had little to no interest in them, but I have a whole bunch of puppets in the basement, and hopefully the grandkids, whenever that happens. Were, get... were those were those vinyl head puppets? They're like, yeah. like hand puppets? Yeah. Yeah. Just a hand puppet with a, with a rubber head. I'm pretty sure it was either a cereal or a soap giveaway. Yeah. It, yeah. it was one or the other. And I think we had more than just those two, but those were the two that one of the fire scarecrow uh, that I played with all the time. So, uh, it, and I haven't, you know what? I haven't thought of that in 40 years, probably maybe longer. Uh, so it's this kind of fun to, to talk about this. So I, I had no uh, mentors at all when it came to puppets. Did, did either of you? I think just my folks listening to Gordon talk about his dad and he was my mom and God bless the parents that, embrace rather than just say and and i'm with you gordon if we could have we were not my dad was in the school business he was a school teacher so was my mom we couldn't afford a toy that was on the market and the great thing was if whatever whatever that toy filled whether it was a puppet or a instrument or whatever it was um mom would would kind of build it and make one like it and we would spend all this time making it and doing it and then, because really, once you got the toy, sometimes that was it. It was it was mostly about getting it. It wasn't about, you know, you're never going to be a ukuleleist and you'll play it three times. But if you have to make the ukulele, then you get twice the enjoyment out of that that thing there. So I, God bless parents. I, it's too late for me. My kids are all in their 30s. But, you know, I hope I did as well by them as my folks did for me. Yeah. Gordon, what about you? A mentor at all? lots um there's really there's really no single person that i would say you know this guy really made me you know who i am or this lady made me who i am there's a lot of people who have that one singular uh mentor in their life um i'm i'm the guy who picked up everything from everywhere mm. so it was um i had great art teachers in school i had uh, um you know i had an aunt who was uh, uh she was a quilt maker my mom was a sewer you know and and uh again my dad when when i would come up with a harebrained idea my dad would be right there because i think he kind of wanted to you know <laughs> yeah i was i was his conduit for his harebrained ideas too um you know my my dad worked at a bullet factory. That's where that's where where it was. <laughs> he wanted some distractions, Gordo. He wanted distractions. <laughs> he 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 worked at Federal Cartridge. He worked there for thirty eight years. Wow. Jeez. And uh, you know the the day that I said, you know what, Dad, I want to build an R two D two. He was like, keep that in mind, and we'll talk about it this week. And the next day he came home with an empty powder barrel. It was a it was a cardboard barrel that used to house gunpowder. And he said, Well, here's the body for your R2D2. Get started. Wow. And so it was up to me to start planning out where all the panels went and where all the little details were and everything. And to get out the the uh uh the exacto knife and start you know, cutting into where I wanted things inset. Then, then he showed up 
with uh, he he went to a lot of garage sales, so he showed up with one of those old vacuum cleaners that was literally a ball, you know, and and it had the 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 little clip and you open it up and you take the take the the dirt bag out of it, put in a new one. So he he showed up with one of those and said, "I think this will make a great dome for your R two D two. Let's let's pull the pin out of this this hinge and you know disconnect that and and you can start down on that." And uh, that's that's where that all got started. Um, you know, he was uh, one one of the best, one of the best dads ever. I um, guess that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back now, and when I met each one of you, and of course I met you separately. I met Jay via corporate events, and Gordon. I remember meeting you and all the other guys at Minifex, uh, special effects company, probably around 1989 or so. I was directing a feature for a friend of mine called Resident Alien. It had some spaceship effects, and you guys, your whole team, built all the spaceships and basically shot them all as well. Shot all the, the you know, the Earth shots from space and all that stuff. And we didn't have any money at all to pay you folks. So I ended up giving, I don't know who took them, but Minifex received my entire <laughs> complete Famous Monsters of Filmland collection in uh, in return for all those great special effects. And then I remember crossing paths with you again when I was working with Mr. Cunningham. Here, the first or second year we did a Christmas Carol, yeah. you created for us a Marley door knocker which uh, was the face of Marley, but it had a little thing on it for knocking and it, it was held up by a flashlight. And at a certain cue, the person holding it would flip the light on and the eyes would go red and uh, the audience would be awed by this really lovely little piece that I think we, for the first couple of years, we gave back to you. We'd come and pick it up again the next year because I don't think you wisely didn't trust us to hang on to it. We still have it and it still works. It was a beautiful prop. And yeah. then then I began to hear about you and Transylvania TV, which, like you said, is a puppet show for grownups. Where did that come from? Uh, let's see. The genesis of Transylvania television was literally the name. <laughs> uh, one day I was sitting there with nothing else in my brain except for the four letters TV, TV. And I, from that, I started just adding little bits on top of that and came up with this concept of, uh, you know, a vampire running a TV station. And the, the original concept changed quite a bit from my original idea, uh, especially after I brought in a fellow who I had been working with on an independent film. Uh, we were, uh, I was, I was supplying a bunch of odd props and costumes to Michael Hegel, who was doing a sci-fi movie called um, Plan Planetfall. He was at my house one day, just, you know, we had finished filming that. And he saw these puppets that I had sitting around. And he just said, have you ever considered doing anything on film with those puppets? And I said, yes, every day. But I'm I'm not a I'm not a filming guy. I, I don't I don't run a camera. I'm not a lighting guy. I'm not a sound guy. I'm not a you know a, a, I'm barely a scripting guy. And uh, he said, okay, I think I got that lot covered. So in the end, um, our partnership became I was handling pretty much everything in front of the camera, and he was handling everything behind the camera. 
and we made our own independent television series called Transylvania Television, uh, which is still available. <laughs> I will, available I will include links in the show notes to it. It, on, on, it uh, is a TV stunning TV. show. Um, it's wonderful. And it just got better and better every season. It's yeah. just well, we, gorgeous. Well, we we had finally reached a point of being very comfortable with the characters. I mean, if, if you watch our pilot episode, it it stinks like a pilot. It really does. <laughs> um, it is just just horrible because we have the characters telling you everything there is to know, and you know, basically reciting how clever we are uh, as the writers. And uh, it just it just did not did not spark. And so um, eventually, that that pilot got chopped up, and we turned it into a flashback episode. So nice. right out of Star Trek. That's very yep. clever of you. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we, we finally got down to doing, um, well, we, we did a bunch of singular episodes. Then we did a Halloween special, which we did a, a Kickstarter for. Mm-hmm. And then after that Halloween special, we were fallow for a little while. And then we got an offer from, um, Sika.tv and they were looking for programming and they said, okay, how much do you want to make a few more episodes? And we gave them a really super lowball number because we just wanted to do it again. Yeah. And uh, we did that. And those episodes, I think, are some of our best work just character wise because it's, it was no longer um, us telling jokes via puppet characters. It was suddenly these characters. These characters now had personality. They had motivation. They had um, they had personality behind them that we grew through these early episodes and through the Halloween special. And suddenly, we all felt really good about what it was we were doing with these characters. And then there was no more money, so <laughs> we haven't produced anything since. But uh, that was that was some of our best our best stuff. Are they still available on Sika? They're still available on Sika.tv, and they're okay. also available on Tubi TV. All right. I will put some links in the show notes to that. Bless Tubi. Yes. You know, uh, John, uh, Gordon was talking about the pilot and how sometimes pilots don't uh, hold up. Uh, there was a plan in uh, L.A. to come up with a show that was all about the pilots of the shows that you came to love. The pilot of the Andrew Griffith show, the pilot of the Mary Tyler Moore, pilot of the Danny Thomas show. And they would each week show a pilot of the show. It never made it because generally the pilots of those shows are nothing that you remember. Mm-hmm. It's not the show that, that became popular. You know, the uh, episode uh, opening pilot of uh, Happy Days, uh, Fonzie just rode in on a on a motorcycle. That was all he did. So, yeah. you know, so, uh, yeah, usually... If a if a series gets picked up, generally it's gonna get better just because performing is the best way to perform. You know, make it. Were you make it in, happen. Were you in from the top on soap, or did you come in a few episodes later? I came on uh, episode seven, seven. Okay. Uh, and and literally just to be the again the ventriloquist killer of my uh, of my stepbrother. Uh, no, he was my real brother, uh, Peter Campbell. I was supposed to be the murderer. And then they got a lot of mail pull, and they, this character was really easy, kind of like Benson on the uh, the Tate side and Bob on the Campbell side, filled a, a, a kind of a hole in the writing. 
so yeah, I stayed for the rest of the time. But yeah, I was supposed to be killed off and put in jail, and I don't know what else. Again, I'm going to refer refer people to your one man show because there is a moment in that one man show where you uh, have to tell your original puppet Squeaky that uh, you were cast in soap but that he was not and uh it ends with a a very nice uh uh profane profane, yeah but then a profane comment from squeaky that (laughs) suggests that we should take whatever steps we need to (laughs) that's right he he was he was uh, a realist about it you know but uh yeah that was a shock to me i of all the times being a ventriloquist and eventually getting a show and eventually getting on television and all the things you you imagine i never imagined that they would say okay we'll take you mr bergen but this charlie mccarthy character forget that we don't want that the uh, monocle are you crazy and it was that to me it was like are you kidding me this this is all i know you know mm-hmm. but in hindsight it was a good thing because i had I had had squeaky as a character for so long he was part of my adolescence and he was always much sweeter than Bob. When I got another character, then they wrote for that. He could be more caustic and more uh, divisive and more mean and all those things. It's squeaky. So uh, I don't know that squeaky would have ever morphed into Bob had it not been for Susan Harris and all the people over at Soap. Yeah. And then you just walked home with Bob when it was all done, right? Yeah. Yeah. They didn't know what to do. You know, they, they kind of got this puppet. In fact, there were three different Bobs uh, and two that we used in the show. Uh, first Bob wasn't really made to last more than seven shows, you know, really. And by the end of the season, I said, we've got to do some work on this guy. So the second one came in. And um, but, but you talked about that one scene with Squeaky where I have to tell him he didn't get the job. Uh, we previewed the show in workshop for Jay Sandrich, who was the director of Soap and Emmys for Mary Tyler Moore and God knows what else. And he saw it and he said, and it was just a joke. I don't know how I'm going to tell Squeaky to get the job. Boom. Because I didn't think Squeaky and, and Bob could be in the same show. I, I think it's really kind of the same character kind of grown up. You know? uh, but he said, you've got to see that scene. I want to see that scene. And I said, I don't know how you're going to do it. And our rule was, if you if you try it and it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. If you try it and it works, then you've gained something. So we put it in one night and it remained pretty much the same all the way through Broadway. Cause it just was right. It was right to do that scene. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful scene. I, I was very lucky to see that show in an early incarnation. Uh, one of the few times I was in Los Angeles for work and you had just started doing it. Um, and the night that I saw it was the first night you tried doing it in two acts where you created an, an yes, intermission. Yes. Um, but I remember several years before that, sitting backstage with you at, I think, a Winnebago show in Las Vegas waiting for your cue to go on. And you said offhandedly, you know, I'm thinking of writing a one-man show. And the idea I have is I'm going to be on a therapist's couch and the therapist is going to have his back to the audience and he's going to be asking me questions. I'm going to answer them. And then eventually the audience will figure out, oh, I'm doing the voice of the therapist as well. He's a puppet. Uh, yeah. It did. It didn't end up being that. But what was the process for for getting to? Let's just call it a Tony winning show. <laughs> let's call it win. that. I won't object. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it, w- w- 
You always say, I'm going to do this show, I'm going to do this show, I'm going to do this show. And you have this idea. At one time, I had an idea that it would be a gunfight in Ghost Town. And there would be no people on stage but me, just voices and lighting effects and a shootout, right? So after you say, okay, that's good for 10 minutes, there's another hour and 40 minutes you have to fill. What are you going to do? So all the ideas were kind of like uh, the, the therapist idea was great for a scene, you know, but it wouldn't hold for a show. So my friends, um, uh, Paul Kreppel and Murphy Cross are the ones that said, we think you can do it. We just talked and talked and talked about stories of ventriloquism and characters. And uh, eventually all those notes just kind of fell in place. It was just kind of kismet and serendipity. But but yeah, I at probably the last conversation before I actually wrote the show, uh, Paul said, what's it going to take to do this? And I said, I don't know. I don't know that there's a show here. He said, there's a show here. I don't know what it is yet, but there's a show here. So uh, eventually I had to put up or shut up, and I'm glad I did. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The show can be seen. Uh, you can buy it on Broadway HD. Is that correct? You can buy it on YouTube as well. And then YouTube. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, and Amazon, I think. Yeah, it's still out there. And we, I just performed it maybe a couple of weeks ago at uh, Marvin's Magic Theater, Jeff Hobson's place in Palm Springs. Yeah, Nice. Nice. Was, yeah, it tough, was it tough putting it on its feet again after a couple of years? No, you know, um, it's been a, an amazing thing. I can be away from that show for a very long time. And the minute I hear that opening uh, uh, overture of, uh, you know, uh, Teddy Bear's Picnic, it all just comes right back you know and by the time it takes me to set up we, we it's a set now that's not the big broadway set it's just basically a black box set with uh tv trays and suitcases and much easier and by the time i set all that up and we do all the sound cues I, i'm back to where i was and love to tell that story and uh, it's always coming back to me i'm surprised you're not doing like a community arts center tour across the country because it's well, a perfect did- show for that sort of thing it is. We did that early and it, it was a hard show. It probably still would be a hard show to sell because uh, you can you can say Tony Award and they go, yeah, but what's it about? They say, well, it's about a ventriloquist. And that's about as far as you get. OK. All right. I know. I know. It'll be a it'll be a funny little guy doing racist humor and there'll be, yeah. <laughs> there'll be a guy saying, don't do that. You know, <laughs> and uh, then there's a murder. And then there's a murder. That's <laughs> right, Gordon. And then I kill somebody. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, actually, there was a there was a show I did called uh, Something's Out There. I think it lasted a season or something. And it was a great pilot. Again, it was about a, a space uh, alien who looked very beautiful. Uh, what was her? A, a, forget her name now. But anyway, she was a beautiful lady. She was an alien, but she had special powers. She joined the police force in this movie. They solved some. So they said, let's do a series. So I did one of those. And I was a ventriloquist and there were murders, but I wasn't a murderer. Uh, there was a, a crazy man in the audience that believed the puppet was giving him specific instructions on who to kill and where to kill. So I was involved. Every place I was, there was a killing. So I was kind of looked at as maybe the guy. But at the end, it was this uh, guy crazier than me. <laughs> so <laughs> they, <had to> do it. <laughs> they found a guy crazier than me. It's uh, great. That's just great. John, so often, and you sort of mentioned the Winnebago, uh, uh, but there's there's some great uh, stories that I have heard you tell about both these fellas uh, over the years. <laughs> there, and you didn't, if I remember correctly, there was a 
puppet that was created by Gordon for Jay. Yes. Uh, to, I, but I'll, I don't remember the me, specifics of that. I, I will I will explain that. Like I said, very lucky to work with Jay a number of times in the corporate setting. Uh, I remember one time after a uh, sound check, the show director came up to me and said, um, why doesn't Jay like you? And I said, what do you mean? She said, he really <laughs> seems to hate you. I said, what are you talking about? We just had a great sound check. He's never said anything mean to me ever. And she said, all he did was insult you. And I said, no, 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 that was Bob. No, Bob doesn't yeah, of like course. me. Bob of really course. doesn't like me. Um, <laughs> the, idea, the idea came to us in the, in the corporate arena. Um, you're always looking for something new and different. And for the particular client, every year they're, for their sales incentive, they would do something fun and then they would hand out checks to all their salespeople. And the salespeople just were there for the checks. Uh, but the guy, the the guy who was hosting it, the executive, always wanted something fun and different and interesting. Uh, and he happened to have a great sense of humor. He was a good old boy, great sense of humor, very funny man, really loved life and had a great face, um, kind of a walrusy sort of look to him. And we had already, I think, booked Jay to be the entertainment on day one. And this event was on day two. And we said, what if Jay comes back on day two when they're going to hand out the checks and he's got Bob, but Bob has made himself up to look like the client in the hopes of being able to run off with all the checks. That's funny. And client loved this. Uh, we spent a lot of time finding the right outfit for him because he wanted to dress properly. And then we had to reduce it down so it would work for Bob. And then when it came time to do the head, of course, who do you call? But Gordon. Um, and he created this lovely representation. And uh, the, the the skit itself was very, very sweet and very funny. Jay wrote some great stuff for Bob. And then as Bob is talking about his plan to run off with all the money, the client walks up behind him on stage and you see them side by side and it's hysterical. They were dressed identically and they looked identical. Um, and the nice thing was at the end of all that, um, we were able to hand the client the puppet and it sat in his office until he retired. Uh, it was a great, great gift. Uh, beautiful think, puppet, by the way. Beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Un until the client, until the client retired, not the puppet. The puppet never retired. No, he's <laughs> well, still he's running still the company. He is still working. He yeah. He runs the feed division, as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> then, because I had connected uh, Jay and Gordon, you guys kind of ran with it, and you seemed to, it was a nice little cottage industry for a while, wasn't it? It was great, and gosh, Gordon, we did we did we did a female once, which yes. was, I'm telling you that, well, John, you came up with the most marvelous idea. The problem for me was how do you, uh, and and Bob being that person was the key. How do you imitate the voice? Because it'd it be easy to come out, oh, this is the guy, and, and everybody's supposed to believe it. It wasn't going to happen. I could never uh, duplicate his voice. So it was just Bob in makeup trying to make people believe. And when I would say, you're not the real, oh, yeah, I am. No, you're not the real. Oh, yes, I am. And then you have the real person come out. And I think the blow line, blow away line was he looked at the real guy, and uh, Bob would say, wow we should have added more wrinkles or more hair or more whatever <laughs> they was. You know. uh, so, but we did it for a woman. The woman, usually the men uh, loved it. It was great. Come out on stage and be with the puppet. And then you get the puppet. This lady, boy, she just did not like that at all. Cause you know, caricatures and women, you know, and she was just crazy. So usually 
it, it was strange. And then one time we did two executives. So we did two reveals. Remember that, Gordon? Yeah. We had two puppets of the two guys. Mm-hmm. So one guy came out, okay, Bob's been exposed. And then the guy would say, okay, now the real, uh, uh, my real partner is going to come out. And, and I came out again with a different puppet that looked like the the partner. And then the partner comes out. So, yeah, we we did that so much. And Gordon was so good about being able to take a picture of the person and a puppet that already exists and sculpt around it so that it looked, I mean, it was just just amazing. And everyone loved it. Uh, everyone loved this puppet. And, uh, Except, of course, for the woman. <laughs> yeah, she did not. I, I, rem- I remember that conversation between you and I. And I, I even said during that conversation, it was, okay, this is a, this is a woman client. It, are, how how caricature are we getting on this puppet? Because yep. it's an appearance thing. Right. And you told me all of the people involved, not her, of course, but all of her people were very, very, very certain that she would just think it was hilarious. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, oh, she's got a great sense of humor. And she, she, you know, she, she doesn't take any of that seriously. And they were wrong. <laughs> Big time wrong. Big they, time wrong. They were dead wrong. How often in your in the scenarios was it a surprise? Because in our case, our executive was in from the beginning and yeah, see, be that part was of the, the planning. They wanted this to be an absolute surprise because I think in their mind they knew she would hate it, you know, but, you know, let's really do it well. So they didn't give me, I didn't have any time with the client. Like normally with, with the clients, I would interview them, talk to their people, get some inside information, and then be able to write Bob being, oh, no, I went to the University of Dada. So I couldn't do that. So they said, well, we'll have a dinner the night before, and you can talk to her and you can ask her questions. So in the course of dinner, I would say, well, what do you, what do you really, you know, this, the, and she told me later, she thought that I was a drag queen that was going to do her on stage. It was going to be her on stage. She got the idea that something was going on, you know, yeah. but she just assumed that would come out as her anyway. But she she just didn't like the puppet at all. And I gave it to her granddaughter, by the way, uh, Gordon. She she no, no, but the granddaughter wanted it. So there you are. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was something. And and I, I'm assuming and I, I, I don't think I ever asked you this. I'm assuming that this was not supposed to be Bob dressed as her did well that i i i did that and and that might have been part of the issue that she knew that you know i don't know but it still was bob trying to pretend to be this woman who was this stuff because otherwise you've got nothing to you know i've got no character right. to bounce, bounce off of i don't know who this person is i've never met this person i don't know where this and bob supposedly hasn't either but he's making up all this stuff so wow. but you get the cool. sense that she'd be more offended as with Bob dressing up as her, then you dressing up as her? They both seem kind of similar to me. <laughs> I was no, going to say, I'm, it's a fine I'm, line there, isn't it? It is. It is. And and I'm not sure that she wouldn't have been pissed that they even celebrated her birthday, because I think it was her birthday. And I think that was another issue. And it was in Santa Fe at a restaurant, and they put a platform on a table. So the, the whole situation was just weird. Uh, but yeah, she just didn't... Um, the whole idea was to get the real person on stage next to the puppet and that face-to-face kind of look when the puppet's yeah. going, yeah, I'm you. No, you're not. No, you're not. And she just 
wouldn't participate in that. It was just like she wouldn't acknowledge that that even looked like her, that that was even part of her. And so it was pretty quick. The, the, well, the, what's the audience doing through all of this? Are they on, are they with you or are they terrified to laugh because they're not sure what the repercussions might be? Exactly. I, I think both. At first, they, they laughed a lot. And as they, you know, as they looked over at her and she was having none of it, the, the laughter went, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I don't know. It was very, very weird. Not funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not at all. So from that moment, that was the only woman we ever did. That was the only time we ever did that. And I, if anybody ever said, let's, uh, you know, our lady, I would go, nah, it's not a lady's gig, you know, definitely not. Yeah, yeah. You, you live and then you learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to I want to go down a, a, a puppet question path here. Um, years ago, I, I was lucky enough to see Avenue Q original cast on Broadway. Ooh. And there was one young woman who I think she voiced a couple things, but her main role seemed to be she would be operating the puppet when one of the other puppeteers who was doing two voices would do, was doing his puppet. And then he would do the voice for her puppet and she would move the mouth at that in time with it so a lot of her job was just responding to what someone was doing and moving the mouth in time and it was one of those uh uh shows where the the it was during broadway cares and so they come out into the audience after the event and everyone was flocking around these other puppeteers but i went up to her and i said how hard is that job to do that without moving your own mouth and she said it took a long long time for me to learn to do that to just Lock my face and let the hand do the work. Now, Jay, I know you told me uh, at least once that there was, I think, a commercial or something where they wanted a split screen somewhere. And um, it, in order to do it, you wouldn't have been operating Bob and you had to work with them to say, I'm, I'm sorry, that's kind of a deal breaker. I, I operate Bob. And I know Gordon with uh, Transylvania Television, um, at least from the behind the scenes things I saw, it looked like everybody was doing their own voicing on that yet in this eli Marx story we talk about a ventriloquist who really cheats in the corporate world and has a pre-recording of the song that he and his puppets sing so it can sound like they harmonize and and i don't want to name names but i know there are ventriloquists out there who do just that sort of thing and i'm just wondering from your guys's point of view how do you feel about cheating like that where the audience thinks you're doing the work and you're not doing the work I am not a ventriloquist, but uh, I really do appreciate theater craft. And the whole point of theater craft is to make the audience think that something amazing is happening on stage. That's how you keep their attention. The use of technology in theater craft has helped immeasurably, uh, you know, especially in the last few years. Sound technology has always been moving forward and has always been being improved. And it's a performance. Is it a Milli Vanilli sort of uh, feeling that you're getting off of this? Uh, or is it uh, being able to appreciate that somebody is using the technology to their advantage? And that's that's a really uh, that's a really milquetoast answer. But that's what I've got. OK. All right. Are you saying the end justifies the means? Um, if the audience is if the, the audience is. Um, uh, really blown away or has uh, had a terrific time at the theater, then, you know, what, what do we care uh, as an audience or as a performer, really? If it's all working, what do we care? Um, I, I wonder how much does it really affect the average audience member 
who doesn't know anything about the mechanics of ventriloquism to begin with. If they walk out of that theater thinking that was a great show, maybe that's what they think. Later on, if they make the mistake of assuming that every ventriloquist is going to do that, they'll get corrected. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, by, by a ventriloquist. Yeah, um, exactly. But does it does it create a, a difficult situation for ventriloquists? Yeah, I think it does because it's just more explaining. That happens with every craft. That happens with every every performance thing because, I, well, I mean, ventriloquism is actually, I think, closer to magic than it is to yeah. what I do. And, uh, you know, television puppetry is is closer to acting versus I don't know. It's it's all on a spectrum, I'm sure. But I see what what you're saying. That makes sense. You know, when when someone goes to a magician and asks them to do something as part of their act, that is quite literally impossible. I mean, even for a magician to to do, that magician's going to educate them and tell them, "No, I can't do that," and probably why. In the case of a ventriloquist, I'm sure that when a, when someone goes to a ventriloquist and says, "I saw this guy do a, do this thing, can you do that too?" The ventriloquist will probably say no, <laughs> and you know, and do a little education on that. Unfortunately, we have to do that all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I as as a puppeteer. How many times have people come up to me and said, I can see your lips moving? <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and for, a, for a while, I was performing at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, and I would carry around. I had a rat puppet. I, I had designed it very much to look like it had been built in the Renaissance. So it was kind of a crude paper mache looking face with a little wooden ball for a nose and pirate clothes. And after the first weekend of going around with this character and just kind of interacting with people, I decided that the next thing I would do would be to make a sign to hang around my neck that said, (laughs) not an ventriloquist. (laughs) And that worked great. Um, Every time someone said, I can see your lips move, the puppet would turn and look at the sign and look at them (laughs) and say, yeah, so what? I I was a big fan of uh, Madam and uh, Wayland Flowers. That just maybe one of the best manipulators of a puppet I've ever seen, and and it was amazing. Uh, Madam would take her hair down while she's telling stories, and she would brush herself. She had mannerisms. And a review of Wayland's act said, by any standards, Wayland Flowers is a lousy ventriloquist. And I wanted to write back and said, he's a lousy juggler and a panamist as well. You know, he's <laughs> he's not a ventriloquist. Why are, you, why are you trying to compare? He's got a puppet. They never have a dialogue. He's just an open stage puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's here's the thing about art and magic. If you went to a concert and the and the violinist came out and and played a violin solo, and you found out later that was just pre-recorded by Itzhak Perlman and he just played it. Then you would go, wait a minute, I, I feel cheated because I came to see a live, as it's happening, performance. Um, magic is a little bit different in the fact that you understand that what you see is not necessarily what's going to happen and vice versa. Uh, there was a friend of mine uh, who was um, at a after a show one time, this lady came up and she said, do you do that? Do you do that? 
trick. I, I saw a magician do this one time and I've never seen anybody. It's just fantastic. Came up to my husband and, and took his shirt and unbuttoned, kind of took it right off out of his jacket, just like that. Can you do that? Well, my friend knew that, that, yeah, you can do that, but that requires a setup of the person, you know, you have to get that person ahead of time and, and he's a shill or she, whatever you do. So he said, well, it takes a lot of, and he didn't, he didn't debunk it. He just said, well, it takes a lot of things. And sometimes I, and the old man left, went to the bathroom, came back. And as the old lady looked away, he kind of went, I'm ready. He had gone to the bathroom and he had fixed himself up and prepared himself for that trick. And when he gave him a week, the, the, the magician said, do you mean that trick or you do this? And ripped off his shirt. And the lady went, oh, my God, the greatest magician I've ever seen in my life. So I, I'm trying to make that into a ventriloquist who would use a recording. And there was a guy in Vegas who actually... Um, it was before, it was just a little cassette tape, um, you know, actual tape. And it was just the last line. So he would sing, uh, and we did it. The music would stop, he would go, together, three-part harmony. And every ventriloquist saw it, said, mm -mm, I'm sorry, overtones are one thing. Three-part harmony cannot happen. And we get a standing ovation, unbelievable. We kept saying, well, you know, that's really not, you know, they're thinking that you're, and it was okay. So, all right, fine. I, I actually do it. No, I'm really, I'm really doing that. And then there was a time that the audience heard that the batteries go bad on the in tape recorder inside of the little puppet. And it kind of went, yeah. So he was blown. But, but I, I, you know, you're right. If it's entertaining and you go away going, oh, that's the greatest show I ever saw, it's hard to justify the fact that you didn't do it with the proper art form or the proper. Uh, English or the proper stuff. I'm I'm torn about it. Um, for me, I don't want to say I'm doing a ventriloquist act and then lip sync anything. You know, I just I want to say this is what I do. These are the limits of what I do. I'm going to stretch them and try to make you think I'm doing a lot more than I am. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do something that is impossible to recreate in uh, a living room. You know, just between the two of us. And that's just me, I guess. But uh, I don't know. I don't okay. know. So, Jay, can you give us uh, a slightly longer than elevator pitch for why people should go and visit Vent Haven? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Vent Haven was a private collection started by a man named uh, William Shakespeare Berger, not Bergen, but Berger. And he was an insurance guy, had a lot of money, but he loved ventriloquism and he loved ventriloquists and he loved everything. So he started collecting puppets and at the death of a ventriloquist, he would see if he couldn't buy or get donated the puppet. And he corresponded with, with people. In fact, um, when he corresponded, he not only kept the letter that he got, but he made a carbon copy of the letter that he sent to the ventriloquist. And um, uh, this warehouse of letters, and some are, I, I was one of the ones that wrote him. As a matter of fact, I wrote him one time that I was just about to go and meet uh, Arthur Seeving, who is very uh, big in my show. And W.S. Berger said, oh, yes, we have a couple of his figures in our museum, and I'd love you to come and see it. All that to say that it sat as a kind of a garage edition uh, museum in uh, Fort Mitchell, Kentucky for a long time. Finally raised several million dollars, and have we built a building that will protect this collection, which is over... 900 puppets and I don't know how many thousands and thousands of, of uh, pictures and 
memorabilia and stage props, anything to do with ventriloquism. And it now is a museum that you can go to and not feel like you're at somebody's private collection. It's an actual museum. And there are amazing things there. Uh, one of my favorite exhibits is a ventriloquist named William Wood. <laughs> yeah, William Wood. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I doubt that was his real name, but you never know. Uh he was performing in South America and was going in a boat to another South American event. And the, the thought at the time was that the boat sank and everyone was killed, except the puppets who were, who were wooden. And they floated ashore in Galveston, Texas, and were found by some people. And they go, well, what is this? So they took them to a doll hospital, obviously. And they said, well, these aren't dolls. These are professional ventriloquist puppets. And, and there must be, you know. So they traced back the puppets to the ventriloquist, William Wood, who had died at sea. Probably using DNA. And, <laughs> yeah, not even. Yeah, exact DNA. Uh, no, rings are on the neck. You know, you ah, cut the neck and, ah. Yeah. Uh, but they were the silent witnesses to the fact that there had been a, you know, there had been this uh, shipwreck. Uh, and they're all tattered, and they look like they're shipwrecked and everything, and they're there, and they're just very haunting. That's just one of the stories. Every puppet has a story, you know. Uh, I've got some puppets there, and um, uh, the the largest ventriloquist puppet ever made, I think, is uh, was Hickory, uh, Hick Hickory, uh, and he's seven feet two. And we Harry Anderson and I used him in a in a special we did, and he's there, so you know, it's, it's great. You should go. Is is Squeaky there? Squeaky's not there yet. Someday he will be. But no, okay. Squeaky's still with me. Yeah. But there is a uh, uh, little Linda who I talk about, and and the two and only is there. She's a little cool. little girl puppet about this big. Yeah. All right. One last question for each of you, then we have to let you go because this is gone and could go on forever, but we're not going to let it. <laughs> yes. Oh, let's what? go. Let's go forever. Absolutely. I... We'll have you back and talk because there's so many more stories to tell. But what uh, what excites you now? Uh, in your respective worlds, in puppetry and in invent world? You know what really is exciting to me is the ability to... Uh, okay, I, I actually have to start. I'm I'm a television puppeteer. Like I say, like Jim Henson, like the Henson Company work. I like working on film and video. Um, mainly the reason for that is because I like to do it. And then when it's done, I move on and never touch that material again. Um, but, uh, in the world of video and film and puppetry together, um, a lot of the work that is really amazing that's happening, uh, happened recently with the new dark crystal television series. Um, they did a lot of digital enhancement to real puppet footage. So you get the real, you know, it, it, there's that that tactile sort of thing that you get with real puppets on film but then they would kind of play with things here or there or in the case of the skexies the bad guys in the show they would do a lot of work with the interior of the mouth they would make the tongue move around and that's very exciting because that's stuff that is so costly when you're trying to do it in in a real you know rock solid way you know you, if you're trying to do it physically um those sorts of things come at a, at a premium price and digital will get you there a lot faster and a lot cheaper than it will 
to try to, you know, you want a tongue that's lashing around like a, like a worm inside this guy's mouth. Well, to do it digitally is the answer versus to do it physically, which is a ton of work and a ton of time in your production. Um, you know, the, the, the digital retouching thing, the digital enhancement is very exciting to me. I've, I've wanted to, to really get into, um, having that happen on a project that I work with because, I think that's a way of marrying the two without being competing, mm. uh, competing technologies. Yeah. I, I think they can work together and they work together very well. Love it. Fantastic. Jay? Jay. Wow. What's exciting about today? Well, first of all, I think in the last uh, 10 years, there have been three or four ventriloquists who have won the major awards on America's Got Talent and from, uh, uh, Darcy Lynn to uh, Celia Munoz to Terry Fader to um, Paul Zerden. I mean, there have been a lot of ventriloquists that that have won. So the 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 consciousness of ventriloquism has been raised. Um, YouTube. The, I must get fifty routines a day from ventriloquists just putting it out there, just putting it out there. So, and and some they're working on it. Some have a ways to go. Some are getting there really closely, and some. Should go back to carpentry, you know, but um, <laughs> at least it's raising the profile. And then, like Gordon said, the technology now is so amazing online that uh, it's it's getting more difficult to determine what's real and what's not, what what is really happening and what's not. And as far as I'm concerned, because I'm a theater guy, I want to be on stage with real people. I want to be able to say this is happening right now as you hear it. I'm naked up here, just you and me on stage. And anything that that I can do to amaze them that way is very, very exciting to me because they're not going to, they have to suspend their belief of saying, okay, uh, this was not, um, this was not a sound thing. This was not pre-recorded. This was not done with any sort of technology that could have been done very easily. Yeah, could be done. So I'm excited that it's elevating live performance because it gets more unique. I'm fascinated by all of this. Uh, Jay, when I watched the two and only, when you put Squeaky away, there is uh, a lot that goes on. You don't just dump a thing in a box and shut it up. I mean, you're laying it in there and you're arranging it. You also, I noticed, put a cloth over the puppet's face. Is that to protect the, you know, the mechanism and the the so it doesn't get scratched, or is there more to it than that? Mainly, it's for protection. But uh, Arthur Seving told me that uh, his theory was very um, uh, Greek that the Greeks believe that when you die, your spirit leaves through your eyes. And since the little characters don't have eyelids, they can't close their eyes. Oh. So put something over the eyes so that spirit can't leave and not be there when you get back. And that's very esoteric. But if it if it protects the puppet, which it, it does, and then there's some other kind of ritualistic kind of spiritual connection, I'm all to that. And I'm all for that because it's all mystery and magic, you know, at some point. You know, I remember the first time at a corporate event uh, where I watched Jay put Bob into Bob's case. And because, you know, I was standing right there, he uh, 
Jay was had some fun with Bob as they can talk as he was putting him in the case and covering the eyes and closing the case. And Bob continued to talk once the trunk was closed. Uh, and for all the world, it sounded like his voice was coming out of that trunk. Then flash forward a couple of years, and I'm in Hawaii for a corporate event, and we're going to do something where Bob is going to change clothes during the course of the event. He's going to wear one costume one day and one costume another. And it's easier for Jay in the long run if he just has two puppet bodies and he just switches ahead oh my from God. one clothes to the other. So he shipped to me at the hotel the headless Bob in a safari suit. And I have it in a case at the end of my bed on the floor. And I keep thinking, boy, if he does something where a voice comes out of that, I'm going to, you're going to have to take me off the ceiling. A million dollars. I had to give a million dollars for that to happen. Yeah. So anything jump out of that interview that uh, really stuck with you? Because I know that uh, sometimes you hear stuff you didn't hear before. Yeah. You know, the whole discussion for me about what we can or should do in terms of can we use a recording uh can we and i i think gordon for me uh hit it right on the head which is hey if their experience is good then why would we not use all the tools that we have available to us and i get jay's take hey i don't yeah. want to do anything that i couldn't do yeah. If I had to do this without all of that, but, but I tend to, I tend to kind of lean that way that it's, it is okay to enhance the audience's experience in whatever way we need to, to give them uh, something that they, they, they simply aren't going to find anywhere else. And I, I get why there's some gray area there, but, uh, but that whole discussion I thought was just, Super fascinating for me. Personally. Yeah, I was really amazed that Gordon was so open to using uh, CGI to enhance the puppet after the performance, to yeah. make the tongue come out, do stuff with the eyes. Um, but that's perfectly in keeping with you know what he said of, of, about using recordings. He's yeah, just philosophy. looking for the greatest possible impact for the audience and not particularly worried about how he gets there. I mean, obviously he's doing it ethically and all that, but he wants to put on a good show. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's the goal of every performer. We all want to put on a good show. Uh, and I, I get Jay's take on it that, you know, there's some things that are fair and there are some things that are, are obviously not fair and we mm -hmm. should walk right up to not fair, but maybe not cross that line. That, I accept that too as a yeah. as a, a working premise, but I thought that that conversation really stood out to me. This in, in re-listening to it, that whole dichotomy of or what are we responsible for, and is it? I'm like I went as a kid. I went to see uh, an electric light orchestra concert (ELO) at the old Civic Center here in St. Paul, and it was a great concert. And so I went with a buddy of mine who's also a huge. Uh, ELO fan and we had a great time it was a spectacular concert standing ovation when it was over a couple of days later big newspaper article comes out that some of what they did was pre-recorded and they were simply as you uh, kind of intimated a, a violin was moving but the sound was recorded mm -hmm. and it it did I'll be honest at the time taint 
my love for ELO. I've since now washed that memory away for the most part and have embraced them again. But that it's strange to me that that's inappropriate, but yet I'm willing to say, well, whatever I can do to make the audience, which is essentially what they were doing. Hey, we can't do that live, but we can do it this way live. I wonder if I'd have a different take on it today uh, if, if it happened. I don't know, but it, it, I think the uh, the possibility of uh, ELO touring at this point is very slim. I um, it, 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 both of them such good guys, and thank thank them both for their time and yeah. for the insights they have. And you know what? I'm not kidding. We should have them back because I I feel like there are stories upon stories yeah. upon stories there that we did not. Get well, to. I had no idea. I know that they had done more executive lookalike puppets after the first one they did with us i had no idea they'd done as many as they had done and that they ran into the issues they did with the female one anyway great talking to those two next time we have speaking of returning guests we have a returning guest next time well, hang on though not just a returning guest a favorite guest a guest who people who listen to this podcast rate and uh subscribe have told us they want him again uh you need to have him on again that was the phrase i think that did it for you yeah and we agree wholeheartedly so next episode we'll chat with the always charming the always delightful the always information packed david williamson oh i can hardly wait anyway that's what's happening next time subscribe rate us please come back we got two more episodes this season and then next season uh knockwood 24 episodes Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for your kindness. We'll see you again. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.